Section 22 of The Age of Elizabeth by Bandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 7. England After the Armada. Chapter 1. English Life in Elizabeth's Reign. The repulse of the Spanish Armada marks the period in Elizabeth's reign when the national spirit rose to its highest point. England, which had long been weighed down by doubts and fears, awoke to a consciousness of its true position. Internal conflicts and differences of opinion ceased to be of importance in face of the great danger which threatened all alike. Englishmen felt, as they had never done before, their community of interests, their real national unity. Hatred of Spain became a deep feeling in the English mind, and when combined with religious zeal and the desire for adventure, produced that spirit of restless and reckless daring which so strongly marks the English character at this time. Nowhere is the outcome of awakened national feeling more finely expressed than in the lines which Shakespeare puts into the mouth of the dying gaunt. This royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fastness built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall, or as a moat defensive to a house, against the envy of less happier lands. Moreover, England, under Elizabeth's careful rule, had rapidly increased in wealth and prosperity. It was free from war when all the rest of Europe was engaged in deadly struggle. The Queen was thrifty and provident, so that industry was not crippled by heavy taxes. The troubles in the Netherlands threw great commercial advantages into the hands of the English, which they were not slow in using. Increasing national prosperity went together with increasing national spirit, and England made rapid strides during the eventful forty-five years of Elizabeth's reign. One way in which this showed itself was in the great advance of literature. Men's tongues seemed to be loosened. They felt and expressed interests of every kind. No longer were some things only of importance, but all things that concerned man and of his life and feelings were felt to be worthy of record. Hence it is that we know so much more of Elizabeth's times than we do of those that went before, and that we have materials for a sketch of the social life and manners of the people. The increase of wealth produced a greater desire for comfort and Elizabeth's reign was marked by a great progress in all the refinements and appliances of daily life. Amongst the nobles, the sense of peace and security joined with the desire for greater grandeur led to a change in the character of their residences. The fortified castle was remodeled into a palace, though still retaining its old appearance. This was the case with Kenilworth Castle, inside whose frowning battlements was a magnificent palace with every requirement of luxury. New mansions were also erected all over England by the gentry, who wished to live in a manner suitable to their dignity. No age has left a more decided mark on our domestic architecture than the age of the Tudors. The Gothic architecture of the Middle Ages had given way before the revival of the classical style which spread from Italy. 
the mixture of Gothic and classical architecture produced the stately yet simple Elizabethan mansions, of which such admirable examples remain in Hatfield, Longleat, Audley End, Holland House, and Knowle. Country houses generally were built of brick or stone instead of wood. Glass took the place of lattices. Of old times, says Harrison, in his description of England, our country houses, instead of glass, did use much lattice, and that made either of wicker or fine rifts of oak in checkerwise. But now our lattices are also grown into less use, because glass has come to be so plentiful, and within a very little, so good cheap, if not better than the other. The walls of our houses on the inner side be either hanged with tapestry, heiress work, or painted cloths, wherein either divers histories or herbs, beasts, and such like are stained, or else they are sealed with oak of our own or wainscot brought hither out of the east countries. As for stoves, we have not hitherto used them greatly, yet do they now begin to be made in the divers houses of the gentry. When the Spaniards in Queen Mary's day saw the English houses, they said, These English have houses made of sticks and dirt, but they fare commonly as well as the king. This reproach was no longer true in Elizabeth's time. The luxury of comfort also made rapid progress. There are old men, says Harrison, yet dwelling in the village where I remain, which have noticed three things to be marvelously altered in England in this their remembrance. One is the multitude of chimneys lately erected, whereas in their young days there were not above two or three, if so many, in uplandish towns of the realm. Another is the great amendment of lodging, for our fathers have lying full oft upon straw pallets and a good round log under their heads instead of a bolster or pillow. The third thing they tell us of is the exchange of vessel, as of treen, wooden, platters into pewter, and woden spoons into silver or tin. Such also was their poverty, that if some one odd farmer or husbandman had been at the alehouse among six or seven of his neighbors, and there in bravery to show what store he had, did cast down his purse, and therein six shillings of silver, it was very likely that all the rest could not lay down so much against it. Whereas in my time the farmer will think his gains very small toward the end of his term, if he have not six or seven years' rent lying by him, beside a fair garnish of pewter in his cupboard, with so much more and odd vessels going about the house, three or four feather beds, so many coverlids and carpets of tapestry, a silver salt, a bowl for wine, and a dozen spoons to furnish up the suit. The rich furniture and decorations of the rooms in noblemen's houses is described by Shakespeare in Cymbeline. Her bedchamber was hanged with tapestry of silk and silver, the story proud Cleopatra, when she met her Roman, and Sidness swelled above the banks, or for the press of boats or pride, a piece of work so bravely done, so rich, that it did strive in workmanship and value. The chimney is south the chamber, and the chimney-piece chased Diane bathing. The roof of the chamber with golden cherubins is fretted, her andirons, I had forgot them, were two winking cupids of silver, each on one foot standing, nicely, depending on their brands. Carpets were not yet much known or used, and the floors were strewn with rushes. Thus Romeo says, 
let wantons light of heart tickle the senseless rushes with their heels in food and in the exercise of hospitality the english were profuse the usual fare of a gentleman says harrison was four five or six dishes when they have but small resort there were many kinds of meat and for a man to taste of every dish that standeth before him is rather to yield unto a conspiracy with a great deal of meat for the speedy suppression of natural health than the natural use of a necessary means to satisfy himself with a competent repast to sustain his body withal. The great men dined in state at a high table in their hall, while their dependents sat at lower tables. The remnants of their dinner were given to the poor. Venetian glass, which was a rarity, was the favorite substance of their drinking vessels. Fifty-six sorts of French wines were imported into England, and thirty kinds of Italian, Greek, Spanish, and Canary wines. Drunkenness was then, as always, a characteristic feature of the English people. China dishes and plates were beginning to be known. Knives, for eating purposes only, began commonly to take the place of fingers in 1563, and forks were not used before 1611. The times for meals were strangely different from our present custom. The gentry dined at eleven and supped at five. The farmers dined at one and supped at seven. Dress was remarkable in this age for its splendor and magnificence. The vanity of the queen set an example of profusion which was almost universally followed and which excited the anger of many Puritan satirists. Even then the English had no distinctive dress of their own, but followed foreign fashions without much taste. Every kind of dress was in vogue, and on great occasions there was a strange mixture of costumes, French, German, and Spanish dresses, varied with Moorish gowns and barbarian sleeves. Different patterns were adopted for dressing the hair and trimming the beard. Some men wore earrings, whereby they imagined the workmanship of God to be not a little amended. Ruffs made of lawn or cambric were worn by both sexes. They were stiffened with starch and wire and were edged with gems. Queen Elizabeth left at her death a wardrobe of three thousand gowns, made of the richest materials. They were of enormous bulk and were stuffed and padded so as to stand off from the body. Gentlemen's breeches and doublets were similarly padded to an uncomfortable size. Over these they wore cloaks of silk, velvet, damask, or other precious stuff, embroidered with gold or silver and buttoned at the shoulder. It was not uncommon for a courtier to put on a thousand oaks and a hundred oxen into a suit of apparel to wear a whole manor on his back. The title of Mary England was not a meaningless one in Elizabeth's time. Nothing can give a stronger testimony to the strength of the wave of Puritan feeling which swept over England in the next century than to see how entirely it destroyed the many games and festivals which before were common throughout the land, and so stamped upon English life the somewhat hard and joyless aspect which it still wears. In the country, the festivities of Christmas, New Year's Day, Twelfth Night, Plough Monday, Candlemas, Shrove Tuesday, Easter, May Day, and many others, were all celebrated with curious pageants and old traditional customs of merrymaking. Each district had some historic festival which it commemorated by some rude pageant. The Morris dancers, 
made Marion and Little John the show of the hobby horse and the dragon, and other performances of that kind awoke the anger of the Puritans, who saw in them remnants of paganism and superstition. Sundays were the holidays of the week, when every village had its games and social recreations. Wakes, fairs, and weddings were all occasions of sports and jollity. Dancing, archery, and bear-baiting were favorite amusements in the capital. There the fashionable promenade was the middle aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral, where the young man of fashion would order his tailor to meet him with patterns, for the dark little shops were ill-suited for the display of goods. There, by his remarks in public, the dandy could get credit for his taste from passers-by before he appeared in his new suit at all. Before dinner he walked in one dress, after dinner he returned in another. If he wished to attract especial attention, he mounted the steps of the choir while service was going on. That was forbidden, and one of the choir boys at once left his place to exact a fine. Then could the dandy amaze the congregation by the splendor of his perfumed, embroidered purse, from which in a lordly way he would quite into the boy's hands that it was heard above the first lesson, although it was read in a voice as big as one of the great organs. After this edifying display, he would look into the booksellers if he were of a literary turn of mind. If not, he would visit the tobacconists, for tobacco, which was first brought to England by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1586, had already become popular. As an amusement for the evening was the theatre, which first sprang into popularity during Elizabeth's reign. The stirring, bustling time awoke an interest in the display of the activity and power of human life. The spirit of adventure felt a desire for satisfaction in the contemplation of the struggles of men against destiny, of the soul against its surroundings. The bands of players kept by the queen and noblemen for the performance of masks and pageants at their own festivities began to give public performances. The people needed something to supply the old miracle plays which the Reformation had stopped. Public theaters quickly increased in number. At first they were rude enough, and were in shape reproductions of the courtyard of an inn, which first had been the place for dramatic representations. The groundlings of the pit stood unprotected from the weather. The boxes and the stage only were covered. The stage was divided into two parts by a balcony, and thus a simple kind of scenery was secured. At first, plays were only allowed on Sunday evenings, but soon the players made four or five Sundays every week. A penny or tuppence admitted to the pit and gallery, a shilling to the more privileged parts of the house. There were no women actors, and female parts were always performed by boys, but the spectators needed few external helps to give the words a meaning, and rouse their interest in the problem of human life and passion which the drama brought before them. As regards the ordinary occupations of the English, commerce and naval enterprise greatly increased the number of those who could find industrial employment. As a consequence of this, the distress among the poor population in the country slowly diminished. The sturdy beggars, who during the last three reigns had infested the country almost like banditti, were more easily put down in quieter times. The first step toward dealing with them fairly was to make provision for those who were really sick and destitute. 
a weekly collection was made in all parish churches for the benefit of the poor of the parish when this was insufficient the justices were empowered to make an assessment for the purpose workhouses and hospitals began gradually to be built finally the system of parish relief for the poor was established on the present basis by a statute passed in sixteen o one which enacted that houses of correction be erected in every county and provided for the maintenance of the poor by means of a rate which was to be collected and distributed by overseers of the poor in this way poverty was provided for and the number of vagrants began slowly to decrease but severity was still used against them and not less than three hundred of these disturbers of the peace were hanged yearly it is computed that there were no fewer than ten thousand of these vagabonds in england engaged sometimes in begging with many devices to excite compassion sometimes thieving sometimes infesting the roads in bands and using violence to the passers-by their number diminished but slowly as it was not easy for them to get employment there was no great increase in the demand for agricultural laborers and in the towns trade was rigidly guarded by the guilds no man could practice a craft who was not a member of a guild and had not served a regular apprenticeship the apprentices were a powerful body in london they were always ready to interfere in a disturbance and the cry of clubs would bring forth a small army of them ready to take part in any riot that arose the occupations for aspiring gentlemen are noted by shakespeare men of slender reputation put forth their sons to seek preferment out some to the wars to try their fortunes there some to discover islands far away some to the studious universities to these we must add the difficult and perilous road to fortune by seeking court favor those whose position did not give them this opportunity or who chafed under its restrictions could find employment in the netherlands in france or in naval expeditions against spain others could go on voyages of discovery either in the arctic regions or in the indian seas those who preferred more studious pursuits studied in paris in germany or in italy italy especially still exercised a powerful influence over which the english moralists bewail there be the enchantments of circe says roger ascham brought out of italy to mar men's manners in england much by example of ill life but more by precepts of fond books End of section 22.